This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we complete our journey through the fifth chapter of Matthew, surveying the many examples Jesus gives for properly interpreting the text. Jesus has been in the middle of a sermon, if you will, starting with a bunch of pronouncements after seeing a diverse crowd of people, a bunch of people who most, even his disciples probably would think, well, they don't belong. Maybe Matthew thought maybe they belonged. I wonder if Matthew sat there watching some of this crowd going, wait a minute, do they... I got a second chance. Do they get a second chance? At any rate, this is a whole bunch of crowd of people that most would say, no, they don't get second chances. But Jesus pulls his disciples to him, and maybe in the earshot of crowds, he says, hey, the, the kingdom of God is for these people. The people that you don't think fit is actually the very people that the kingdom of God is for and is going to work through. And if you understand this and you pursue this, you're going to be persecuted. But blessed are you and you're persecuted because they persecuted the prophets in the same way before you. But you are going to be a city on a hill. You are going to be the light of the world. You're going to be the hope of the world because you are going to bring the hope and the good news, the euangelion of kingdom, shalom, into people's chaos. And so you are going to be, uh, you are going to be the hope. And I, we suggested last podcast, people's response to this probably was, well, wait a minute. Does that mean you're throwing it all out the window? Are we doing something totally brand new, like Torah doesn't matter? But what did Jesus say? Brent, give us your own words. How about you give us a little synopsis of where we were at last podcast? He said, don't think I've come to abolish Torah. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to show you what it is to live it out. Right, to interpret it correctly. And the prophets. And the, the prophets. Way. Right. Let's not forget the prophets. And what did this interpretation mean, Brent? Is he going to interpret it with his mind, his intellect, his academic interaction with the text? Yes. All right. And then he's going to show how to actually do it. Okay, so it's going to be accompanied not only with his, what we would, like for them, it's all interpretation. For the Jewish mind, this is this whole process is interpretation. But for our typical Christian theological minds, it's the interpretation and the obedience. It's the interpretation and the walking out. And he says, I'm going to show you what this looks like. And he doesn't just leave it there. That's not where the Sermon on the Mount ends. Jesus then goes on in the rest of chapter 5 to say, and here's a bunch of examples. You've heard it said, and we talked about what, what was the word, Brent? He has, he sure acts like he has, or maybe he does have. We would say he does have. He has shmicha or he authority. Has, okay, he has authority. He has shmicha. And he starts saying, here's a bunch of examples. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm going to tell you what that commandment was always intending to do. I, I, whatever your rabbis have taught you, I'm going to tell you correctly. And the assumption is, and watch me, because I'm also going to live this out. I'm not just going to tell you, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I've told you, don't hate. He's then going to go out and live out this commandment of, you can't, you can't hate your brother. You can't be angry at your brother. You got, you got that look on your face. Nobody else can see it, but like, you've got something to say. Like, spoiler alert here. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even read this text yet. Giving it all away. Oh, well, great. How about we, every verse, Brent, how about we read? Let's go, uh, let's go item by item through the rest of this chapter and just look at all of these examples that Jesus is going to use. Uh, to talk about this um, new, quote-unquote, new and yet the oldest interpretation of the scriptures. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, so... 
in, how in, many questions can we get in one paragraph? <laughs> yeah. So this, uh, you could say this, you could suffice it to say that Jesus is suggesting that the Torah, like we haven't even gotten through the whole chapter yet, but one of the themes you're going to see in Jesus's responses here is the Torah is actually about changing us on our insights. The Torah is going to go about the work of changing our heart. Like God gave us the law to change who we are. Now this actually, like for Christians, we're like, oh, of course. No, but for the Jewish mind, this is very, to this day, actually, a very counter type statement. Uh, Jewish thought does not do this with the Torah. Uh, in fact, I've heard a, well, Rabbi Foreman, who we love very dearly. I've quoted lots of his material. I once heard him kind of talk. He didn't reference Jesus directly, but it was clear he was talking about Jesus's teaching when he talked about some of the things that Jesus taught. And he said, how silly of an idea it is to think that this is about doing unto others what you would have them do unto you, because I can't truly do that. I want you to give me a million dollars. Like the way that Jesus interacts with Torah to this day is still quite counter to the way that Jewish thinking works, because Jewish thinking says the Torah is not given to change your insights. It's given to control your outsides because the Torah is a bunch of commandments and you either obey them or you don't, but it's very objective. And in fact, the Torah has how many commandments in it, Brent? 613. 613. And they created over time, this was after like officially canonizing them after the days of Jesus. But they had the Mishnah, which was like an additional roughly 3,000 commands that kind of, it, they, they talked about it as if it was a fence. So God gave us 613 commands in scripture. In the Old Testament, Brent, what would, what would you say they learned in Babylon about those 613 commandments and their history? Uh, they didn't follow them well enough. They didn't follow them well enough. So they came back, we said, passionate about the text. They had built synagogue. They had created an educational system. And they also had come back with, in, a, in essence, eventually it would become a canonized fence. Like if God gave us 613 commandments, if we put a fence of 3,000 commandments around that, and eventually that 3,000 fence became the 6,000 of Talmud. So if we put a fence around God's law, and then we put another fence around that fence, and we focus on not breaking the fence, we certainly won't break the commandments. Now, I know far too many Christians that would just shout legalism. They're not doing it because of legalism. They're doing it because they want to have a heart devoted to God. They're doing it because they wanted to learn the lesson of Babylon. Like we said this at the beginning of this session, if we had an ounce of the devotion that this Jewish culture and people have had throughout the ages. It would be astounding, but we don't. Um, we interact with the text and the commandments of Jesus and the commandments of Scripture far too flippantly. But they view Torah not as something that changes your inside, because who can see your insights? Only God can search the mind and know the heart. We've heard that already. Like only That's something only God can do. Like The commandments aren't about changing your insights. The commandments are about making sure that you remain the kind of person and not that it's a moral code, but it's about the outer actions. So don't murder. But what Jesus suggests in the passage that you read is it's not just about not murdering. The commandment was actually given to Moses on Mount Sinai so that we would learn how not to hate others. Well, what does it actually say? Can you read it again, Brent? But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus wants us to know that the commandment do not murder is just about, okay, I didn't murder today. Good job. The commandment do not murder is supposed to teach us about how to interact with other people. 
It's supposed to be about our insights and talk to us about the kind of people we are supposed to be, not just the actions that we do or don't partake in. And so it's about whether or not we're angry with our sister, whether or not we want to do away with our brother. It's not just about whether or not we murdered them. We cannot murder them and still in our heart harbor this deep-seated resentment, vengeance, a, a desire that they weren't even alive. And Jesus says, well, do not murder was actually designed to get at that part of us. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Okay, Settle, so again, okay. were you done with that no, I mean, there's another. Okay, go ahead. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, so again, Jesus takes this don't murder, a prohibition, and he turns it not into like a new kind of... See, I've always been told in all these passages that Jesus is upping the ante. Like, what did I even write? I wrote in my notes this. I, contrary to most popular thought, Jesus is not upping the ante for God's expectation. Jesus is claiming that this was always God's expectation, that the prohibition against murder is actually about anger and hatred in your heart. Um, that, like, it was taught to me a million times, like, the law taught this, but Jesus came and upped the ante. Like, he upped the expect. No, he didn't up the expectation at all. He's actually saying this was always the expectation. And he shows that by saying it's not just about what you don't do. It's not just about the prohibition to not murder against the prohibition against murder. It's about what you proactively do. And so he gives proactive expectations. I thought the commandment, Brent, was just not to murder. But he says, actually, you shouldn't even be angry or have anger. And in fact, it should actually make you proactive. You should go be reconciled to your brother and sister before they take you to court. Before you go to the temple, before you engage in worship, all of this comes out of one command for Jesus. And he's not upping the ante like this wasn't God's expectation before. He's trying to say, God gave you the commandment, do not murder, so that through Torah, you would learn how to go and be reconciled to your brother. That's pretty, it's just different than what I was handed before. And not just proactive, like, before he takes you to court, try to settle it. Well, if he ends up taking you to court, try to settle it on the way. Like, right. don't give up on the idea of reconciliation right. until until you have no more options. Right. Take Absolutely. every opportunity to reconcile. Absolutely. And this all comes in Jesus's mind from do not murder. It's just, Jesus is saying that's what do not murder always meant. Like in the rabbinical sense, he says, I'm showing you, I'm fulfilling the law. You don't want to know what do not murder means? It means settle your legal matters before they even become legal matters. And you're like, what does that have to do with do not murder? It's what the heart of do not murder was even getting at. Um, it, the same is true for adultery. Go ahead and read the next, uh, the, I'll actually let you read the whole section here, whatever it is. Well, uh, pretty much everything else is in one paragraph. Right, so right, you're right. going yeah, to... I was a little go. too trigger happy on that last one. Yeah, murder, it's kind of a big deal, I guess. All right. <laughs> There's a lot of depth to that. <laughs> Uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I cannot tell you how many youth group lessons I sat through 
where I was told as a young man, you know, Jesus start, God started with don't commit adultery, but then Jesus came and he upped the ante to lust. Like the same idea of upping the ante. Like before it was just don't commit adultery, but now, now you can't even lust without falling into sin. And it was always this up the ante conversation. Jesus is saying, no, this is always what the conversation has been about. Don't commit adultery was always designed through the course of obeying Torah. And it's not just don't commit adultery. There's a, how many laws did you say there were? It's not just the 10 commandments. It's 613 commandments. All these commandments were given so that you would learn how to treat people. Like if you notice the theme in all these teachings, it's about people, which we just looked at in the last episode. It's going to be about loving God and loving others. And Jesus says, do not murder is about loving others. Do not commit adultery is about loving others. You can't, you can't love other, like you can't love your sister, like another woman, a married woman. You can't love another woman by just not committing adultery with her. Jesus is saying that you have to, you have to recognize the full humanity of who this person is. It's not just about not committing adultery with them. It's about recognizing that they're a full human being. You can't just treat them as an object. You can't just treat them as something to be lusted after and say, well, I didn't. That commandment was always about this other thing. Jesus claims that God has always been after a changed heart. These commandments aren't just about murder. It is. But it's about more than that. It's about your heart. It's about the heart that would lead you to murder. The commandments aren't just about adultery. They are about adultery. But it's also about the heart that would lead you to commit adultery. Um, God's been looking for a partner who will see the world the way that he sees the world. Not just someone who will follow a set of rules. These rules have never been about behavior modification. They have been about the condition of our hearts. They have been about who we are as people. Like, this is critical. Go ahead and lay Go ahead and lay the next one on us. What's the next one? It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. And again, oh boy, what did you make Christmas? How do we deal with this in the podcast? I want to talk the divorce teaching later in Matthew. This is going to come back up again. Because, man, let's at least say for now how badly this thing gets abused. Because, again, the theme of this whole section, and by the way, we're going to tag Dallas Willard's book in this podcast again, but uh, Divine Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, uh, he, he does a great job throughout that whole book showing how all of these thoughts are not disjointed, but they flow. Murder flows into adultery. Adultery flows into divorce. Divorce flows into O's. Like there's a flow to this line of thought here that we're working through. So these are connected ideas. But the theme of these ideas is about how we treat people. The irony, the tragic irony of this particular passage is how badly we've used this to beat up people who have been through divorce. Like we use this passage to be like, look, Jesus hates divorce. Look at what he says. Can't be, this is the only reason a divorce can, if you, if you married a divorced woman and we use it for all this judgment when the very point of Jesus's teaching is the thing that's wrong with divorce isn't just a divorce. It's how you're treating other people. And then we turn around and we use it to treat people so poorly. Unbelievably frustrating for me. But we'll talk about the, there's a rabbinic argument that Jesus is wading into on this teaching on divorce. We're going to do it towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to hit the pause button on it for now. But as we go through it, I want to point out it's about 
people. It's about people. It's about people. It's about people. Jesus says murder is about people and the kind of person that you are becoming as you interact with people. Adultery is about people. It's not about a morality code. It's about how you treat others and the kind of person that you are becoming and how you interact with others. Divorce isn't about just the morality of divorce. It's not just about the morality of divorce. It's not just about the morality of divorce. It's actually about something far wider and deeper than that. It's about the kind of person that you're becoming and what it does to people. It's always about people. What do you got next, Brent? Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So oaths, it's about, it's about people. It's about your word and what your word means. And you create these complicated systems. This Pharisaic world had gotten, again, this is another idea we're going to come back to later in the seven woes to the Pharisees. But this Pharisaic world had created all these loopholes. Of, they had created this oath system where if you swore by this, but then you could undo, like if I made a promise to you, Brent, and I said, no, I promise. I promise by uh, the temple that I will do this. But then you met somebody like later on that week and you're like, oh, shoot, like I really need to do that instead. You could say like, well, I promise by the gold of the temple that I will do this thing. And then when I see you later and you're like, but you promised by the temple, you'd be like, well, I promised by the gold of the temple for Bobby Jr. over here. So sorry. They had created like this intense system of oaths and oath keeping. And, and, and Jesus says that that's not what, that is not what the whole oath thing in Deuteronomy and Torah is about. Like you, that is not... It's about how you're treating other people. So how about you just let your word be what your word ought to be? Your yes be yes, your no be no. How about we just let that, because it's about how you're treating other people. It's not about the morality code. It's not about some rule that you can adhere to. It's about how you're tre- Oaths, the whole passage on oaths in the Torah, Jesus would say, was not given so that you could know how to use an oath. It was given so that you could make promises that could be fulfilled to people. That's why the oath was given. So don't dis, don't abuse that and disuse that in a way that is uh, that disrupts shalom with others. What do you got next? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay. Um, There's been some that have written about this. Uh, I'm just realizing that. Um, Let's see. I'm pretty sure that I have read maybe the best excerpt about this idea in Shane Claiborne. I'm going to say it was in Jesus for President. It may have been an irresistible revolution. Hmm cannot remember. Maybe we'll just link to both of them. You can have fun finding them. They're both on my favorite lists, and it would be a good read and a good use of your time no matter what. But maybe we'll link both of those. Shane Claiborne, though, um, heard a few different authors deal with this in different ways, but I think his was, he had a, he had a write-up that I think was one of my favorites. Um, uh, so in, in this ancient day, he kind of gives uh, three examples, right? What's the first example, Brent? 
Uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Right. So, well, first of all, let's even deal with the commandment. Uh, the commandment itself was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Given in Torah, that's a Torah commandment. Jesus isn't trying to say that any of these commandments shouldn't be followed. He's trying to fulfill them. He says, you, you've been taught about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what do we typically do with that commandment, Brent? Uh, well, if uh, if you cause some sort of damage to me that, right. you know, is worth $100, then I get to cause $100 of damage to you. Right. Like we do a, 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 a tick for tack. Uh, is that the right expression? Tick for tat. Yeah. T- there you go. That, that I knew I was off there a little bit. But we do like, a, yeah, an eye for an eye. Uh, uh, what is it? A tit for a tat? Yeah. Okay. There we go. Uh, we have that kind of mentality. But the law actually, in its context, if you go back to, to Torah, and many rabbis point this out, not just Jesus, it's not given for a... A tit for tat, hundred to a hundred. That's not why the law is given. The law is given in order to protect a system of um, retribution from getting out of hand. It's it's actually to make sure that the cycle of vengeance doesn't get started. Remember the Samson story, Brent? Like how when, how did it start? Uh, what something about I don't know something happened and then he went back and killed like 30,000 people or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It starts with uh, uh, a guy, Samson took a goat down and then he had given uh, his brother-in-law to his wife or his, yeah, yeah, the brother to his wife or, or excuse me, his wife to his best man would be the appropriate expression in our world. And so then Samson goes and he burns grain and by the time the story is over we have mo- like thousands of people dying. So it just keeps escalating. The commandment in Leviticus was given to keep that from happening. As you administer justice, you are not allowed to exact any more retribution than the situation demands. It was, but we turn it into the adverse. We choose it not, we turn it not into a defensive posture, but an offensive posture. And so Jesus is saying, let me interpret this for you correctly. If somebody hits you, go ahead and read that. Go ahead and do that again. The cheek. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, okay, turn stop. to them. Okay. Now, he slaps you on what cheek, Brent? <clears throat> on the right cheek. On the right cheek. Now, it's been pointed out bef- uh, by a few different authors, Shane being one of them. Uh, the right cheek, that seems like an interesting detail. Like, remember, we've learned all the way back in session one when something jumps out at you as being, like, unnecessary, you need to pay attention to it. In this ancient world, I only interact with people with my right hand um, because my left hand is used for toilet duties. Um, and so you don't eat with your left hand. You don't interact with people. If you're, even if you're going to hit somebody, you don't hit them with your left hand. You touch people, you strike people, you interact with people. People interaction is always done with your right hand. So, And you might need to actually get a partner if you're listening to this podcast to understand this and see this correctly, but maybe you can envision it with your mind. If I'm going to, if I'm facing you and I'm going to strike you on your right cheek, how am I going to have to hit you with my right hand? Uh, with with the palm of your right hand. No, because if I hit you with my palm, what cheek am I going to hit you on? Oh, my left. Your left. Oh, right. So what's the way that I'm going to hit you with my right hand? So the back of your hand. The back of my hand is the only, which in the Roman world is this symbol of dishonor. It says to the world around you, I just hit you like, it's the way you would hit a slave. It's the way you would hit somebody of a lower class. So if somebody just hit you on the right cheek, they are like, looking down on you. They're not just hitting you. They're also demeaning you in the way that they struck you. And so Jesus says, what? Turn to them the the other cheek. The other cheek. Now, what Jesus does here is strikingly provocative because he's not saying, well, just let them hit you again. Just passive, you know. 
Jesus is saying, I'll tell you the one thing you're not going to do is you're not going to hit them back. Like there's not going to be, you are not going to respond with retributive violence or, or redemptive violence. There is no redemptive violence that works. This is, again, I hope, I hope so many of our listeners are being challenged by this because I don't think many of us would live by this rule. That if somebody struck you in a demeaning way, it's just not the American Christian way to not strike back. We strike back. So I hope we're challenged enough by that. But what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 you turn him the other cheek. And what's the statement you're making? Like if I just backhanded you, Brent, and you turn and point to your left cheek, what are you saying to me? Saying, hit me like you mean it. Hit me like I'm your equal. Right. Respect my, hu- if you're going to hit me, respect my humanity enough to hit me like a fellow human being. And you are now showing everybody watching the injustice for what it is. You're calling out the injustice, but you are not fighting back. And in that moment, Shane Claiborne has pointed out, in that moment, you are now offering kind of a third option because now this person can actually respond and you can say, well, they're not going to repent. Okay, probably not. I get it. But you are giving them the opportunity to see what they're doing and take another way. Whether it's repentance, apology, just turn, you are letting justice, goodness, shalom reign in the midst of chaos, injustice, and and those kind of things. Have you ever seen The West Wing, the TV show? I'm familiar with it. I've watched it once. So one of the early episodes, something happens. I can't remember exactly the situation, but somebody's like, somebody's killed or whatever. Okay. And so President Bartlett is like, well, I'm going to, whatever people group it was, he's like, I'm just going to blow the whole thing to the ground. Like this is over. And he's just like fired up and angry. And so there's this conversation like, no, you can't do that. Like there has to be a proportional response. Right. We'll take out, you know, these little military targets or whatever. And yeah, it sucks that that happened, but you can't just blow somebody off the face of the earth because of one thing. Right. But there's even, even in that, like that was a good conversation to have, like bring that anger down, bring that back. There's still no conversation of, well, right. Just don't respond at all. Oh, we're exactly. And Jesus is saying the commandment was given. See, it's one thing to use the commandment to have that conversation. That's good. But Jesus is saying that's not the best fulfillment of the law. The best fulfillment of what that command was intended to do would be, let's show the injustice for what it is, but not respond in kind. So not eye for an eye, but eye for a, let's show the injustice and let restitution be possible. Uh, What's the next example? If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Okay, so the reference here in their uh, Greco-Roman and Hebraic world, uh, they're going to have two garments. They're going to have their outer garment, which is essentially like their clothes. And then their, how did it, what, what did the translation say? Uh, shirt and then coat. Okay, if somebody sues, go ahead and read it again. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Oh man, that's a horrible translation. <laughs> so... So the actual reference is backwards. I would say if I was going to translate it using those two words, coat and shirt, like there's an undergarment and then there's the outer garment. And somebody is, like Jesus is saying, if somebody is suing you for your cloak, that's your outer garment. That means you literally have no money. You have nothing left to your name except the clothes on your back. And they're willing to take you to court to sue you for the very clothes on your back and make you stand there in your underwear, your undergarment. And Jesus says, you know what? Just hand him your undergarment too. He doesn't say fight it. He says, show the injustice for what it is. 
stand there stark naked in front of the court and say, I have nothing left. Uh, I'll give you, I'll even give you the undergarments that I'm wearing. Like it's this, it's this provocative third option. I will not, I will not play the game that you are playing. And see, and if you're following this, you understand Jesus is getting directly at the interpretation of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because so many would people say, I have the right to play the game that they're playing. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what the commandment's for. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not there so that you can play the game that they're playing. It's there so that you don't play the game that they're playing and that justice reigns. That's what we're after. And so the last verse, I love that, or the last example. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. All right. So the practice was called angaria in the Roman world. A soldier could come along and, and angaria allowed them the right to do many things as soldiers. But one of the things they could do by law because of angaria is they could force you to carry their pack one mile. Roman law said any soldier could stop anybody on the road, citizen, non-citizen, and they could force you to carry their pack for one mile. They are not allowed by Roman law to go beyond one mile. So what I love about what Jesus does here is he says, if they force you to carry your pack, carry it too. Like do more, like do more. Cause there's going to be this awkward moment when you get to the one mile marker where the soldier's like, okay, your work's done. And you just keep walking. And now the Roman soldier's going to be like, well, wait a minute. I, I could get, I could get in trouble. No, wait, stop. Like I, no. Like Jesus is, there's this provocative, I'm going to show the injustice for what it is, but I'm not going to play your game. This is not going to be a strength violence competition. That's what eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is apparently, according to Jesus, and if we're followers of Jesus, it's not like, well, maybe he's right. Nope. If we're a follower of Jesus, that's our yoke. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was meant to teach us how to come up with creative ways to pursue justice period. And and we don't have any other option as Jesus followers. We have to adhere to the way he interprets the law. It doesn't matter if we don't like it. If we're a follower of Jesus, that's the interpretation. What do you got next, Brent? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, let's stop right there. Because for years and years and years, people always said, nobody said that. It's not in the Bible. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy is nowhere in the scriptures. We have not found it. It's not in the Talmud. It's not in the Mishnah. We had never found any reference to it. And then people always said, see, the Gospels are crazy. Jesus is quoting stuff doesn't even exist. But then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found the writings of which pesky little group, Brent? The writings of the Essenes. Yeah, the writings okay. of the Essenes, right? And in their code of community, there was a reference that said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so here's a direct reference to Essene philosophy. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There must have been Essenes in the crowd, maybe. Somewhere. I don't know. But they have Essene connections on some level. John the Baptist, who knows? But you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Go ahead. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I love this teaching to close our podcast today because Jesus says, like, if you don't love your enemies, there's nothing about 
you that sets you apart. Like that's the most of all the things that Jesus suggests. One of the hardest things to get our minds and our head around and and to accept in Jesus' teaching is the idea that we are to lo- truly love our enemies. Like that's an astounding idea. And Jesus's claim in the Sermon on the Mount is, but that's the only thing that would set you apart. Like that's what makes you like God. God loves his enemies. God loves everyone. And if you don't love your enemies, you're no different than anybody else. That's what everybody does. You love your friends? Good job. Everybody loves their friends. You love everybody that's like you? Yeah, even the pagans do that. Who cares? Like, that's not unusual. There's nothing striking about your love if it's only for your brother, if it's only for your neighbor who looks like you and acts like you and thinks like you. The only thing that's actually truly different is the kind of love that would love your enemies. Jesus claims that the very thing that makes us like God is our ability to love our enemies. He points out that everybody loves their friends. There's nothing that sets you apart from others if you merely love your friends. The only thing that sets you apart is if you love your enemies. That's what makes you like God. Wait a minute. What if the story about God and showing the world what God is like? Isn't that what the story was always about? What if this was about, maybe we ought to link, Brent, in our show notes, our Kingdom of Priests podcast. We can go all the way back to session one and say that our calling was, in the very book of Exodus, God said, you're going to be for me what, Brent? A kingdom of priests. And we said the role of a priest, one of many roles, was to do what? Can you remember the first role of the priesthood? Uh, To put God on display. To put God on display. What kind of God are we putting on display? A kind of God that loves his enemies. That's why we have to love our enemies. And then Jesus closes with this quote, which is horrible in the English. What was the last line of what you read, Brent? Uh, let's see. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Golly, I hate that quotation. I think this is one great place that proves that Matthew was written in Hebrew originally. Um, because it's, it's properly translated from the Greek, from the Greek manuscript that we have of Matthew. Perfect is the right translation. The problem is, is that this reference comes from Leviticus. It's a direct quotation of Leviticus. Do you have the Leviticus passage there, Brent? Uh, Yeah, let's see, Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moshe, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Like, have you ever read Matthew and went, Do I have to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect? Hey, you kind of know you're off because perfect isn't even a Jewish idea. Like, it's a totally Greek concept, platonic concept of perfection. But if you read that, you're like, well, that's important. You have that wrestling match of like, I can't be perfect. Like, what is, like, what? What is Jesus asking me to be? When you realize that he's quoting Leviticus, you realize that the the commandment is not to be perfect, but to be holy. And what did we say holy meant? The word kadosh, Brent. Set apart. To be different. Well, if Jesus, if, if God is saying in Leviticus, let alone Jesus in Matthew, if the commandment is be different as I am different, well, that's totally something I can adhere to. That's totally something I can be called to. And uh, again, I think this is one of those places. If Jesus, and here's the thing, I was once uh, on Facebook talking about how I thought Matthew was written in Hebrew, and I had some really uh, very educated, intelligent PhD um, doctorate graduate tell me that how stupid I was. I went on this long rant about how every single quotation in Matthew, every single quotation, do you hear me, is taken word for word out of the Septuagint. So it had to have been written in Greek. Well, guess what, Mr. Brent Billings? This quotation out of Leviticus, not taken from the Septuagint, because that's not the word the Septuagint uses. So, but alas, I got out of that Facebook conversation because nothing ever good from a, came from a Facebook argument. Do you all hear me, listeners, Bayma podcast listeners? Nothing good comes out of a Facebook argument. 
Facebook arguments specifically. Yeah. I mean, Facebook can have some decent stuff like the Bay Ma page where we yes. share delicious little goodies. Ooh, I like it. But nothing ever good came out of a stupid thread where you argue about theology. So just stop it. Um, so I, I just I just gave up on that. Let that person be smart. It was fantastic. Um, maybe there's a third way. Maybe I should have chosen a third way. A turn the other cheek kind of response. But I, alas, I was not good enough. But yeah, so be holy as your heavenly father is holy. The definition of holy to be set apart. Uh, and that quote from Leviticus fits Jesus' teaching perfectly, much better than a statement about perfection does. Leviticus was the book that invited us to be different, to be priest-like, and the thing that will set us apart from the world will be our ability to love. This is the theme of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the ability to love God and love other people. It's got to look like love. What was the center of the Beatitudes, Brent? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And, and then showing mercy. Mercy. Like, you want to know what righteousness looks like? It looks like mercy. You want to know how to interpret the law? It looks like becoming a different kind of person in the way that you love other people. It's about mercy. It's about love. It's about forgiveness. It's going to be this constant theme of how you treat other people with the radical love of God throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. But we're only one third of the way through. So we got to keep moving. Next podcast. Just for the record, I did verify that it does not appear that way in the Septuagint. Absolutely. Check that out. I even got ready for that before we uh, did the podcast. It was already verified, but I love the fact that you fact-checked check. me. Fact check. Live Bama fact fact checked. Uh, also, that episode that you're talking about, was it the Leviticus episode? The Kingdom of Priests episode? Yes, so that's should be. Bema episode 25. Bema episode 25. To become a kingdom of priests. To love everyone. Our neighbors. Our friends. Our enemies. That is what the Torah was always designed to teach us, according to Jesus. All right. Sounds great. Um, yeah. We'd love to know what you're thinking about uh, about Jesus' teachings so far. So uh, get a, get in touch with us. Marty's on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I am at EIBCB. You can go to BamaDiscipleship.com. Contact us there. Uh, we've got the Facebook page that we mentioned earlier. Always good discussion going on there. No arguments, hopefully. None. I delete it. I don't let that crap go on. All right. Well, in light of that, thanks for joining us on the Baby Mom Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.